We come this Lord's Day to continue our study on the subject, the God of all comforts. And as you will recall, we have been considering the glorious truth about our Lord Jesus through the incarnation being made a perfect sacrifice in our place for our sin and Himself being made our high priest who presents His sacrifice for us unto God. Because Jesus suffered being tempted like us, yet without sin, He is declared to be a suitable man to represent us before our God as our high priest. But our suffering is nothing compared to the temptation and suffering of Christ when He took our sins upon Himself and was punished in our place by God. In Hebrews, the full weight of Christ's suffering for us is finally laid bare in chapter 5. It is presented in sharp contrast with the nobility and honor of Christ to be made our high priest by God. That honor was given to Him by His Father from of old. He is declared to be the Father's Son and by an oath made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But it all comes crashing into the horror, the terror, the ignominy, the shame of being judged guilty in our place for our sins. In His flesh, Christ cries out unto God with strong tears of supplication and prayers at the prospect of being made a curse for His people. Christ's cries were most vehement, the Scriptures tell us, for the weight of our sins laid upon Him and the punishment He was to bear for us. God His Father did hear Jesus when He cried and did save Him from death when He raised Him from the dead. Jesus learned by His suffering as evidenced by His strong prayer and cry the meaning and heavy cost of obedience unto death in His human flesh. The consequence of this is that being made perfect by the suffering Jesus bore, He is the author of eternal salvation for us. Note well that the suffering of Christ proves the perfection of the offering. Jesus was perfectly obedient in the face of His suffering and His agony thereby testing and proving His utter perfection morally and spiritually, and consequently His unique fitness to be our offering and our priest. In Gethsemane, Jesus prayed in such an agony and sweat as it were great drops of blood. This agony was no mere fear and dread of death itself, but rather the loathing of Jesus to be cursed for us under the law and treated as guilty in our place. Under God's wrath, the prospect of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God without a taint of sin at all, now to be made sin for us, was almost unbearable to Jesus. Yet, Jesus submitted Himself to the divine will in this matter and became obedient unto the death of the cross. We would have run away from it all, but Jesus would not do so. Though he considered the possibility of escaping the sacrifice, yet he submitted to it. Morally, Jesus was incapable of running away from the offering, even as the lambs of olden time were physically incapable of escaping death on the altar. Then the Gospels describe the mocking, the humiliation, the beating, the crown of thorns, the nails, the spear which Jesus suffered at Calvary. But it was all far worse than that. 
Jesus was left by God to wrath and judgment for sin, sin that he had not personally committed, but which was laid upon him by God's imputation of our crimes upon Christ's sacred head. Jesus cried out to God, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus thereby claimed for himself the horrible death that the psalmist foretold of him in Psalm 22. But in the end, while God did not rescue Jesus from the wrath and suffering of the cross, yet God did not despise or abhor Christ's afflictions. Rather, God is well pleased with the offering of Jesus. He heard Christ when he cried out to him, and he raised Jesus from the dead in power and glory and vindication. God never rejected the offering of Jesus. His offering is, in fact, a sweet-smelling savor unto God. When we think that Jesus could never have been tempted like we are, we ought to think on the sore temptation Christ rejected to walk away from us, to reject the cross, to refuse to suffer God's wrath for our sins, because of Jesus' faithfulness in His temptations, the agony and terror He faced are things that His people will never have to face. For Christ took away those dreadful fears of judgment and wrath by drinking Himself that bitter cup that should have been our lot and our destruction. He has set us free from all that. Judgment is ended for His people. Eternal life is provided for His beloved ones. Those who have trusted in Jesus will never be faced with God's wrath for our sins like Jesus was. No wonder the Scriptures tell us that our God is the God of all comforts unto us. Now this Lord's Day, I hope to begin to discuss the comfort we have in God's solemn oath to Christ. God's solemn oath to Christ. But I wonder if you've noticed this is no mere pro forma death for our Lord Jesus. It was real temptation. It was real suffering. It was unimaginable agony, both physically but more importantly, morally and spiritually. And all this are things which Jesus has saved us from by taking our place. How glorious his love is for us. How glorious His sacrifice is for us. Think of the words of that hymn by John White, written somewhere in the 19th century. Was it for me? For me alone the Savior left His glorious throne, the dazzling splendors of the sky. Was it for me He came to die? Was it for me He wept and prayed? My load of sin before Him laid that night within Gethsemane. Was it for me that agony? Was it for me He bowed His head upon the cross and freely shed His precious blood, that crimson tide? Was it for me the Savior died? It was for me, yes, all for me. O oh, love of God, so great, so free. O oh, wondrous love, I'll shout and sing. He died for me, my Lord and King. Praise God. Now, at the end of chapter 6 of Hebrews, 
the writer shifts from qualifying Christ as our sacrifice and Christ as our high priest because of the suffering and the temptation that he underwent. These have been the themes from chapter 2 to chapter 5, that Christ is qualified. He is God, a very God, the inheritor of all things, the ruler of the world, the one who made all things, the image of the Godhead bodily. And yet He is also man. He is clothed in our flesh. He came into this world to have a body in which to make an offering for our sin and in which by death He destroyed the power of death and delivered us who through fear of death were all our lifetime subject to bondage. And He was tempted in His humanity like we are, yet without sin. And therefore He's qualified to be the sacrifice, but not only that, to be the high priest. So the writer moves on at the end of Hebrews chapter 6 to justify or to qualify Christ as our sacrifice and as our high priest based upon promises made by God to His Son upon which He points out our comfort and our consolation rest. So, Our comfort and consolation are in Christ because He is like us. And He suffered like us and He was tempted like us. Yet He did not sin. And He made a perfect sacrifice. And He's our high priest. And He's qualified to be that because of His suffering, because of His likeness to His people. Now we see the writer begin to take on the subject of how Christ is qualified to be our high priest and thereby our comfort is secure in Him because of promises made by God to His Son. That promise is the oath made to the Lord Jesus. We find it first recorded in Psalm 110, and it's repeated often in the New Testament, several times in the book of Hebrews. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is an oath made by God to His Son, made by the Father to His Son, made by God to Christ. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It never begins and it never ends. He is forever and eternally a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is a promise. This is an oath that the Father made to the Son. An ancient promise. And when the writer exhorts the Jewish believers once again to keep hold of Jesus and not turn away, not go back to their former ways which could never save them, not to walk away from the sacrifice of Jesus. He introduces the certainty of God's counsel and oath. The two things in which it is impossible for God to lie, the things that are immutable, That is, they cannot change and will not change the counsel of God and the oath of God. And he introduces it in this way. Beloved, we're persuaded better things of you, that is, than apostasy, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience 
inherit the promises. So here is his exhortation to them to continue on in the faith and to exhibit that faith by their good works towards one another and towards the Lord. And he lays down this idea that people who inherit the promises ultimately do so through faith and patience. So there's a promise made, and then there's a trust in that promise, and then there's patience to wait for the promise to make its appearance, and then finally there's an entrance into the promise when the promise finally comes to pass. These works do not save us, but rather are signs of continued faith in God's promise of salvation to us through Jesus Christ. And then he uses the example of Abraham. Abraham is his example of this idea of faith in the promises of God and in the oath which God makes towards keeping the promise. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now here is a, like I said, a historical reference to the promise of God to Abraham. And the promise that the writer of Hebrews is particularly focusing on, that God will bless him and multiply him. And remember, Abraham had no children. He was old and dead, as the Scriptures say. And Sarah, his wife, was probably also past her ability to bear children. But Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So he received the promise and then he waited patiently for what? 20 years, maybe more. Until finally, what came? Little Isaac. Isaac was born. The example of Abraham is that God made a promise to him. And by making that promise, God was revealing His secret counsel, that is, the thing which He had determined to do beforehand. His counsel was to do good for Abraham by giving him an offspring and a nation. Now, that's not the only thing God promised, but that's the thing that the writer here is focusing on. God's counsel was to do good for Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was to do good for Abraham. And God's oath to Abraham was to do good for Abraham. And notice that it says that God can't swear by anybody greater, so He swear by Himself. You know, when you go into court, you swear an oath before God to tell the truth. And oaths are usually sworn by the deity that the people worship because they intuit that the deity can punish them if they violate their oath and they're standing witness before God of the truth of what they say. Some people promise on their mother's grave. That's a special quaint ethnic promise, isn't it? And promise on this, that, and the other. But the writer of Hebrews says that God can't promise by anybody greater than Himself, so that's what He does. He makes it His solemn oath. He's accountable to see that it's done. And He most certainly will see that it's done. So Abraham patiently endured these promises and ultimately received the promise Isaac. And of course from that, a great nation. And of course, 
parallel to that, a spiritual seed that is the Lord Jesus Christ and all who are in Him by faith, a greater multitude even than the physical seed of Abraham. But God's confirmation of His promises to us, the heirs of the promise, the seed of Abraham, is shown at verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Oaths were taken very seriously in Hebrews' writing day. If someone swore an oath, that was the best you could expect, that they would accomplish what they swore. And so here he's repeating that men swear by the greater, so God swore by Himself, for there is none greater. And He says this, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Now here is, you see, the parallel of what happened to Abraham in the matter of the physical descendancy. That just as God swore by Himself to Abraham, and revealed His counsel to do Abraham good, so too God swears by Himself to His people and reveals to them what His immutable counsel is. So the two things that are immutable are the counsel of God and the oath that God makes to someone to carry that plan, that decision out. Now this idea of the immutability of the counsel of God of course runs into trouble, doesn't it? With the false teachers who believe in open theism that God doesn't know what the future holds. Some of the prominent ones have readily said publicly that God's counsel to save people by the death of Christ was not immutable. It only came along after men fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. Now, how could God know? How could He have an eternal, immutable counsel about these things when it depended on what we did? And God reacts, you see. We act and then He reacts. And He's a lot more powerful than we are and has a lot more knowledge than we do and can guess the future better than we can, usually. Therefore, you see, their theology undercuts the immutability of the counsel of God to save His people by the death of Christ. And so they don't believe that Christ was a lamb offered from before the foundation of the world. They think that's just silly. And they spend lots of time arguing about the minutia of the Greek language to try to weasel out of what God's Word says about the eternal, immutable counsel of God to save His loved ones by the death of Christ. But this counsel of God is what He decided to do. And the promise, the promises are seen in the Old Testament many times. For example, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The promise that God will pardon the sins of His people In Isaiah 53, the promise that God will lay our sins on His Son and crush Him in death in our place. And therefore, He shall justify many. That is, see declared 
His people completely without fault for all because He shall bear their iniquities. So these are revelations of the counsel of God as to how and what He intends to do in the saving of His people. And then there are promises, like I said, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord, the Lord will surely pardon His people. He will delight over them with singing. The new covenant, there'll come a time when I'll write my law in their hearts. They'll know the Lord and I'll remember their sins against them no more. I'll take away their sins. And of course, the new covenant is a unilateral covenant. There isn't any specified thing that the people have to do. It's all the work of God, all the plan of God, all the determination of God. So there is God's counsel to save His people. And there are the promises that were made. And there are, one might call them even oaths, you see. By God, this is what I will do. And it will not change, and I will not take it back, and I will not repent over it. The writer of Hebrews then says that these two immutable things, the counsel of God to save His people, and the oath of God to save His people, in which it was impossible for God to lie, by these two unchangeable things about God, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Our consolation, our comfort, derives not only from the humanity of Christ and His deity, not only from the perfection of His suffering, not only from His sympathy with us because He has suffered being tempted, not only from the offering that He made for us, not only from His suitability to be our high priest, but also from the immutable things, the counsel and the oath of God in which it was impossible to lie, we have a strong comfort, a strong consolation in the promises of God who have fled. That is, we have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Notice our comfort, our consolation is anchored in the unchangeable determination of God to save us, to redeem us, to justify us. And He has sworn to us that He will do these things. So you see why these false teachers next deny the perseverance of the saints because, you know, God can change His mind and take it away just as easy as He gave it. It's not immutable. There's not an oath. They just reject all those texts or don't see them as applicable to their theology. But these immutable things of God hold sure like an anchor. The way an anchor sets in the rocks in the sea to hold the boat from being cast upon the rocks or being driven before the wind. An anchor that is sure and steadfast. And the reason it's an anchor is because it is impossible that God should lie about anything or change His mind about how He will save His people from their sin. Now, notice that things get a little better 
even than that, when we move on to verse 19, verse 19, where it says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. What is the anchor sunk in? It is sunk in Jesus Christ, our sacrifice and our high priest, who is already in the Holy of Holies, where we are promised to be saved to one day when the resurrection comes. You see, He is entered into the veil and our anchor of hope is sunk into Christ. The rock, you see, that is already entered into the veil. You see the superiority of the doctrine which the writer of Hebrews is pressing upon his readers over that of the Old Testament priesthood. You know, the Old Testament priest was a sinner and died and failed and never entered into the holiest of holies, only into that tabernacle which was a sign and symbol of it. You see, He is the One who went before us to glory, is our Lord Jesus, into the holiest place to present His sacrifice and be our high priest. He's there already. And the promises of God, the oath of God, the counsel of God, which cannot change, you see, is reflected by the active work of Jesus even now, having made His sacrifice, presenting it before God, interceding for us like a good high priest should. But there is, I suggest to you, another parallel counsel and oath of God, which probably we mostly miss when we read chapter 6 and 7 of Hebrews, but he will go on to develop the consequences of this parallel counsel and oath in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. That God has determined to save His people, but He has determined to do so by the sacrifice of Jesus as our high priest. And He has confirmed that with an oath to His Son. You see, the Lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. The means by which God would keep His counsel to us to save us, to forgive us of our sin, is laid out to the Old Testament saints obscurely, but to us quite clearly in the Old Testament prophecies, which we've covered so many times. But there is a parallel counsel and oath that God has made that He will save His people by the sacrifice of Christ. And He's confirmed that with an oath to His Son. What was the oath? The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we can look at the counsel that God's revealed as far as our salvation, and we can look at the oath God has made to us as far as His promise to save us, but we can also look and must also look at the counsel that God has purposed, how He will do these things and by whom He will do these things, and the oath that was made to Christ that confirms His counsel as to these things. Thou shalt be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the sureness of our salvation is not only God's counsel to do so or His oath to accomplish it for us, but also God's counsel 
to perform it by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, and His oath to His Son as to His priesthood, as to His eternal priesthood, which are things in which great comfort should rest for us that God not only promised us with an oath, but He promised the Lord Jesus with an oath that He would be the great priest unto righteousness for His people. Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. And so our hope and our comfort, our consolation, rests in the eternal execution of this oath to Christ at Calvary and in glory now. He is forever sworn by God to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And God will not change or go back on His Word either to us or to His dear Son. He is sworn to be the King of Peace. He is sworn to be the King of Righteousness. You remember at the beginning in the first chapter of Hebrews, it says that God has anointed Messiah with the oil of gladness above thy fellow because He has loved righteousness. He's loved righteousness. And here again we see the theme picked up. He is the King of Righteousness. He is the High Priest of Righteousness. Which harks back to what the prophet Jeremiah foretold twice in his great prophecy. We shall be saved by our King because His name for us shall be called the Lord our Righteousness. The promise that God made to His Son, the oath He made to His Son regarding His being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is a promise that Christ will be the righteousness, will accomplish the righteousness, will clothe His people with righteousness. And it's not just a promise to us. It's a promise to the Lord Jesus Himself. God's oath to Christ regarding His high priesthood has necessary glorious consequences that ensure that He saves every one of us, which hopefully we can look at next Lord's Day. And the writer of Hebrews lays them out. It's quite striking once you realize that these are in fulfillment and the necessary consequence of an oath made to Christ by God that He shall always be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Our God is the God of all comfort because He has comforted us in His promises to us and in the oath He made to Christ that He will forever be our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. John Sinek, 300 years ago, wrote this hymn about this subject. A good high priest has come, supplying Aaron's place, and taking up his room, dispensing life and grace. The law by Aaron's priesthood came, but grace and truth by Jesus' name. He wants temptations new of every sort and kind, that he might succor show to every tempted mind. In every point the Lamb was tried like us, and then for us He died. 
He died but lives again. And by the throne he stands, there shows how he was slain, opening his pierced hands. Our priest abides and pleads the cause of us who have transgressed his laws. I other priests disclaim, and laws, and offerings too. None but the bleeding lamb the mighty work can do. He shall have all the praise, for he has loved and died and lives for me. So around this table we recall the picture Jesus left us of the sacrifice that He made to save us and how He is carrying out and fulfilling that solemn oath that His Father made to Him. He will forever be our priest after the order of Melchizedek. And by the bloodshedding of Christ and by the sacrifice of His body on the cross, He has taken away our sins so that God might declare us righteous and completely without fault for Jesus' sake. And He's presented that offering before the throne of grace. In His own person, in His own body, He presents it, you see, constantly before God and pleads its effectiveness for the saving of His people. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice in the promises that You made to us and in the oath that You made to Your dear Son that He would be our High Priest to establish righteousness, to rule in righteousness, to take away our sin. We thank You that we have seen Your oath to Him fulfilled and are seeing it fulfilled even today and will see it fulfilled for all eternity. That He should be the sacrifice and the High Priest that offers the sacrifice and presents it before You as full satisfaction for His people. The priesthood of Christ never fails to accomplish the forgiveness of the sins of the people for whom He makes an offering. And we rejoice in this cup that pictures the blood that He shed. The blood that was poured out for our sake and for our crimes. And we thank You that we can know that it was really the body of Christ and really the blood of Christ that worthy offering that brought us redemption. We thank You one day we'll see that offering with our own eyes when we see the Lord Jesus in His beauty and perfection, but with the wounds that testify to the struggle and the victory over sin in the grave that He wrought on Calvary's tree. And bless us as we partake of this wine, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing Isaac Watts' hymn at page 143, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, 
And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? 143. 